Today is October 27th, 2019. Welcome to Common Ground. The sermon series we are in is called De and Reconstructing Faith, The Essentials of Holistic Faith. The sermon is called Our Purpose in Life, and the speaker is Andy Hill. Enjoy. Okay, are you ready to hear what your purpose in life is? (laughs) Your purpose in life is to get a dog. No, I'm serious. If you have a dog, you probably don't need to listen to the sermon because you probably know more. Uh, Our dog, we got our dog in May, and I've learned more about the meaning of life from that dog in six months than I had in um, 43 years before that. Um, And so uh, when Chris showed me the list of topics that were left in our series to talk about, um, I jumped on this one not realizing that it would, I would end up with three full different sermons. And not one of them had to do with my dog. And now I, now I regret not writing a sermon about Levi. It would have been much more straightforward. But instead, we're going to talk about Jesus and Joseph. Um, but um, mostly, well, mostly Jesus and Joseph. Um, uh, there's probably no more visible way for God and our faith to be reflected in our lives than in how we live out what we think our purpose is. Uh, For the last three years, I've been preoccupied with nothing more than figuring out what my purpose is. I'm sure it's partly due to age. Let's be real, I'm at that stage in life where midlife crises happen. Uh, I've been working in finance for 20 years, and I'm tired. I can't do it much longer. I've spent the last six months training people in Ohio and India to do my job, fully aware that my time to be out of work will soon arrive in the grand narrative of global outsourcing that we've been writing for ourselves as a country for the last few decades. I've been in New York for 20 years, and I'm tired. When I do get laid off, it will be the second time. Uh, I don't know that I have it in me to keep fighting New York just to live here. It shouldn't be this hard, but it is. Um, But you don't have to be in your 40s or beyond to reach a crisis point. I had a quarter-life crisis as well, and it drove me into New York and into finance. You can be any age to experience a course correction. If you were a fan of Lost, you might remember those words. Course correction was the major, major theme of season five. The second to last season, where they start to figure out what their collective journey of being lost has meant. The concept of course correction is where they realized that no matter how the past may have been written, they were all destined to end up on the island together and be lost together. Joseph's story reflects this uh, a bit. Our stories right here might also reflect this. Our verses for the day are more or less the beginning and end of Joseph's story, at least the parts that correct his life, uh, his life course to align with the dream he had. Uh, the passages are from Genesis 37 and 45. Um, in case you're like me when you're listening to a sermon, uh, sometimes you need mental breaks and to go back to passages. That's totally fine. I'm with you. Uh, so again, that's Genesis 37 and 45. Um, Joseph's brothers hated him because he was the favorite son. And honestly, Joseph didn't exactly win them over by boasting that they will 
bow down to him one day. They eventually do bow down to him. When Joseph's dream becomes reality, uh, what I think is many decades later, he's a changed man. He knows a few things about how the world works, about how self-serving, powerful people can be. Joseph is sold into slavery, bought by Egyptian royalty, rises in influence, and just when he's starting to figure out his place in the world, he is falsely accused of a Me Too moment and thrown into prison. After some time in prison, he wins respect again and is placed in very high authority in Egypt. He is in charge of making sure Egypt stays fed through a seven-year famine. His brothers show up one day seeking relief from the famine. That dream he had as a young boy wherein his brothers were bowing down to him was finally revealed as Joseph being their protector, their provider, the ultimate servant, feeding an entire nation and his family. Joseph's youthful, boastful, prideful self had been transformed into the ultimate humble servant who cared more about an entire nation than he did himself. I've been thinking about Lost a lot lately because of a comment I heard at the office a couple weeks ago. This terrible person told someone within earshot of me, the ending of Lost is terrible, don't watch it, don't even start it. And then they went on to include Game of Thrones and their diatribe of terrible endings. We can all agree to disagree, uh, but I was especially amused at the Lost comment because it ended nine years ago and this person still hasn't gotten over it. You should definitely get over things like that if it's been nine years. But I get it. I'm still a little bitter that Crash beat Brokeback Mountain for Best Picture. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I can, I, I can understand this person a little bit. Um, what was so disappointing to a lot of people about how Lost ended is that it revealed itself as a metaphor for life and the afterlife. Uh, once the characters learn about their course correction, they enter into the final stage of their journey where they learn what it was all about. It ultimately wasn't about the smoke monster. It wasn't about the hatch. It wasn't even really about the island they all got lost on. The point of the story is that they had all been brought together for eternity, starting at the place where they all got lost together. But the tragedy of Lost is that they don't truly grasp that their purpose is to be with each other until they're on the other side of eternity. This life, they kind of wasted it because they missed the point. When they get to the afterlife, they finally see that the only things they took with them are the relationships they had with one another. I moved to New York on Super Bowl Sunday 2000. Like most people who moved to New York, who all in this room moved to New York and did not grow up here? I thought so. Because <laughs> that's New York. We all move here to make something of ourselves. And I did that too. Uh, when I moved to New York, I had a pretty clear idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in film and television. Um, I worked in production for a little while, but I didn't enjoy the entry-level wages. So, I know, I hear that's still a thing. Um, so I decided to utilize my degree in economics and give Wall Street a try. Then the corporate fraud scandals of the early 2000s happened, and the entire industry gave birth to what became the bulk of my career. Uh, risk management and regulatory compliance. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's not how I feel right now. Working on the inside of major banks to keep the executives in line 
definitely resonated with me at the time. Um, it, uh, it became uh, what I can clearly recall as the first time in my life that I felt like I had a calling. The idea that God had made me to do something to help redeem the world left me on a spiritual high for several years and uh, certainly made staying in the closet easier since I had something pretty substantial to occupy my time with. Repression is very easy when you're constantly distracted. Until the distraction vaporized overnight. Despite how important I thought I was at work, my salary was ultimately just a number that needed to be cut in the aftermath of the financial crisis. I was out of work for 18 months and my entire outlook on life changed. If what I thought was my calling could disappear so easily, what else had I gotten about God wrong? Did God actually make me to do something? Evangelical cultures love to champion messages like, you were made for such a time as this, and I have formed you in your mother's womb, and I know the plans I have for you. These phrases are Bible verses. They're empowering. They're true. Everything that's happening right now in politics, I'm actually very glad I'm alive to witness it. How riveted I am to it may be revealing what I do next in life. And if we have anything to learn from the teachings of Jesus, it's that life is short. There is much work to be done. And our faithfulness to him will be rewarded. But Christians far too commonly take these concepts and spin them into meaning that a life in Jesus will lead to the perfect career that we were made for, that will compensate us so handsomely so that we can give back to ministry. And if your walk with God takes you from crisis to crisis, your faith must not be right. A favorite phrase from my past is, my sin must be blocking me from God's fullness. Listen, there is nothing about Jesus' life that should make you think that any of that is true. He grew up in poverty and wandered around the nation. He was beaten and neglected and left for dead. Our purpose in life has nothing to do with our professional contributions to the world. It has everything to do with the journey we take by following Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you've studied your Enneagram, you probably know something, a little something about your false self versus your true self. Your false self points you to a different wing or number, and your true self points you somewhere else on the spectrum. I am primarily a one, which apparently means that I don't really care that much about the Enneagram, so the sloppy summary that I just gave you fits my personality, and I'm not going to take the time to figure that out. But if you know better than I do, you can tell me. Um, to me, the Enneagram is, um, is another way to make you feel boxed into a certain personality, and you shouldn't be. It's great to understand it, but no, if you learn anything from being a New Yorker, Learn that you can redefine yourself however and whenever you want. But false self, true self stuff, hold on to that, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Joseph's story is a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Jesus was betrayed by his disciples. We focus a lot on Judas being the betrayer, but they're all guilty. They all abandon him to save their own necks. Like Joseph, Jesus was falsely punished for the sins of others, paid the ultimate price by dying and going down to the depths. Joseph to prison, Jesus to the grave. It was in that place that I believe Joseph's false self was killed. The kid who boasted to his brothers that they would one day bound down down to him, and his true self was born. The man who would later use his power to care for an entire nation plus his family. Like Joseph, Jesus rose again to be the ruler of the entire world, to be our ultimate humble servant who provides for us, guides us, and beckons us to follow his path to death to ourselves, to rise again as new people who care more about the well-being of others than we do ourselves. Jesus asks us to follow him to death and new life so we can join him in all the many ways he is working to redeem the world. I believe that what Jesus is getting at when he asks us to take up our cross and follow him, um, I believe that's what he's getting at. Uh, He's asking us to kill our false selves so our true selves can emerge. The new birth he talks about. Our false selves care only for ourselves, but our true selves care more about others than we care for ourselves. Of course, very few people inhabit one extreme or the other. I believe that the journey from pure self-centeredness to pure selflessness is a lifelong path, full of random challenges that take us from one point on the spectrum to the next. The people we meet along the way and the relationships we form are our purpose in life, the journey itself. Like any theology nerd, I've often wondered what eternity will be like. The Bible shows us a massive city with streets of gold and mansions. A concept that's pretty common in conservative circles is that work existed before sin, so therefore we should assume we will all have jobs to do in heaven. This theological framework around work is a real thing. Whether you realized you were previously in systems that believed this or not, uh, since we're... um, Since we're talking about deconstructing and reconstructing purpose in life, um, I need to touch on this for just a bit. There was a book that came out about 15 years ago called The Prayer of Jabez. Anyone? Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Jabez is this guy in the Bible who shows up for like four verses. I think it's in one of the Chronicles. Um, I didn't bother to go back and look. The the whole thing just kind of triggered me. So I'm touching on this just high level, and then we're going to move on. Um, Jabez is this guy who shows up briefly and he asks God to increase his territory and influence. God grants his wish. The prayer of Jabez, this book, greatly influenced evangelical churches. The line of logic people started to articulate from this book goes something like this. Discover why God made you. Use your skills to maximize your value and influence in the world. And you'll be ready to manage the new Jerusalem. Those who don't will merely be citizens in heaven, but probably won't have much authority in the administration of things. In the year 2019, I think we can confidently debunk the idea that our work here, what we do to earn money, doesn't have anything to do 
with what God wants us to do in heaven for one reason that's not even biblical. The robots are coming for our jobs. (laughs) I am not joking. Watching my job get outsourced this summer to lower cost labor is only the first step in the corporate strategy. For those of you outside banking, know that one day compliance and risk management will be entirely managed by artificial intelligence. Cars will soon drive themselves. Restaurants will have kitchens without humans. Bank tellers will be a thing of the past. All of this can be Googled and read about. I'm not here today to argue for or against this kind of future. I'm only interested in saying to you what I've learned in New York. Don't find your worth in your work. And don't assume that what you think is your calling now will even be your job or your passion in five years. What career you pursue changes with age, season in life, location, passions, wisdom, and many other factors that are constantly in flux throughout our lives. What we do with our time here professionally may or may not hold eternal significance. My time on Wall Street working to redeem it from its excess has shown me that whatever eternal significance it holds definitely pales in comparison to the priorities Jesus is calling me to live out. Your purpose in life is not to be the most successful you can be. It's to be the most human you can be. The characters in Lost learned this way too late, that their purpose was the journey they took together. We don't have to wait until it's too late to learn that. I don't know exactly what's next for me after Wall Street or after New York. Until it became obvious that Joe and I are likely leaving New York soon, Um, I probably told many of you that my calling was to plant a church here in New York and that being a leader here at Common Ground was also my opportunity to learn how to do it. That may still happen. I may still plant a church somewhere. But my insistence that it be in New York was still my false self placing an eternal significance on what I do here in this life. I like how Chris put it to me months ago as I was wrestling with, with this. Chris Romine said to me, this isn't my church, this is God's church. And so I say back to myself, this isn't my city, this is God's city to save. New York is in many ways a foretaste of New Jerusalem, and I say that without a hint of irony. It's a gathering place for the world where no demographic group dominates. Borders are porous and everyone is welcome. It's a place where the world unites, or at least tries to. It's a place where it's up to you. If you can make it, you'll make it anywhere. At least those are the lies we tell ourselves. In reality, (laughs) New York is a pressure cooker. You will learn more about yourself here than you will anywhere else. I'm standing here today delivering a sermon because of something I learned about myself. Probably the biggest thing I learned in my 20 years here. That preaching Jesus to those who were told to go home brings me joy. It helps bring into sharper focus how God has equipped me and how he wants me to use those skills during my brief life. But ministry is no different than secular work. We use our skills to make the world a better place, but our accomplishments and our resumes don't go with us when we die. 
The only things we take with us are our relationships to each other. Joseph learned this after a very difficult journey. The church in Acts learned this through the power of the Holy Spirit to unite them in common practice right where they were. Chris closed last week with something that bears repeating as often as this community meets together. And if the day comes that we have all eventually moved on to different communities, let us take these principles with us. For these are the ways the church has been building itself for centuries since the first church did it in Acts. We build community by sharing our stories, by sharing meals together, by praying together, and by worshiping together. These are the practices that unite us. These are the ways the church unites itself to Christ. By making space for each other and welcoming each other into our lives, we make space for anyone God might add to our community.